Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 221, recorded for July 26, 2023. The biggest innovator in SFTP in 30 years, Amazon Web Services. Wow. You never would have guessed that. Yeah, I wouldn't either. <laughs> How's it going, Matt and Jonathan? You already heard Ryan. <laughs> Good. I'm doing well. All right. Well, we have some news as usual. Uh, first up is some general news. Uh, HashiCorp State of Cloud Strategy Survey for 2023, uh, I think it was published a couple weeks ago, and I, you know, it was a decent read, but nothing really interesting kind of struck out to me that which brings the show until they, they cut it down by a tech sector perspective. So this is a, a breakdown of the, uh, the survey results just from companies who identified themselves as technical or tech sector companies. This would be your SaaS companies. This would be anybody who's making software or hardware potentially for the technology business, meta, whatever companies. Uh, and so they basically said that, you know, just, the first one was despite uh, strong macro pressure and recent earnings reports about slowness and growth, 48% of, or 48% of respondents increased their cloud spend in the last 12 months, which does seem to be, uh, you know, going against the tide. Uh, but the more interesting one was 94% of tech industry respondents indicate the multi-cloud works, citing that it has advanced or achieved their company's business goals. I don't believe that. I think it's their business goal is to get out of their data centers, right? So while you're in progress of that, sure. Yeah. I mean, the thing about that is I, I can see the value for SaaS vendors, right? Especially if you're dealing with large data ingestion. If you, like, I think we were talking to New Relic, for example, they launched uh, New Relic on Azure. You know, it saved their customers a bunch of money because they're not doing egress charges out to the internet to AWS to basically get the New Relic data in. And they see that as a strategy that helps customers reduce money and also helps increase adoption as well as partnership opportunities. And they're going to do the same thing, I assume, with GCP and, and maybe Oracle and others. Um, that makes sense. You know, I get that. And it's a different play than, you know, your typical, you know, enterprise SaaS company that's making enterprise software. I don't know if this is quite as important or if you're doing business to consumer or any of the other spaces that are in the cloud or cloud adjacent. Uh, so this is a very minute uh, audience of people, I think. Well, I assume all of them are doing multi-cloud correctly, where they're they're not trying to spread out workloads across all the cloud vendors and trying to, you know, provide arguments and and keep everything agnostic so they don't or so they can avoid vendor lock-in and that they're you know using cloud exactly what, how it should be, which is you know take this workload that can be elastic and and put it on uh, a public cloud and take your static you know, monolith that can't scale or never will and, and run that on cheap commodity storage and data center you rent somewhere. Right? They've all got to be doing that. Yeah. I mean, they did. I did find it interesting also that 91% of those tech companies rely on platform teams to abstract and automate away a lot of that complexity. Mm-hmm. So I think that is, that's the key solution. If you want to be big on multi-cloud, then you are committing to invest in a big platform strategy. And that platform should then basically allow you to obfuscate the cloud idiosyncrasies and basically give you a platform that allows you to do all the magic that you need for your application. I really wish they published the questions they asked that, that generate these answers and the stats from the answers. Because it kind of reminds you of the, the toothpaste thing, you know, like nine out of 10 dentists recommend, you know, Colgate or what was the alternative? Like charcoal? <laughs> Wasabi? <laughs> I mean, they paid Forrester to do it. Uh, I I actually, I mean, you took the survey, then you knew what the questions were. <laughs> um, I, I, I looked and see if it has all the questions listed, but I, I think they, they do try to highlight. Oh yeah, they do have the question in here. Then the answer: Which of the following factors contribute to avoidable cloud spend, aka cloud waste? Your organization, and they give you the choices they gave, and then what people check selected. So they give you kind of a breakdown of it. But anyways, fair enough. I did think um, ranking number one and two uh, barriers to the tech industry. Multi-cloud barriers was uh, cloud skills shortages. And I think that the real answer to that is that you're not going to find very many tech people who are all gung-ho about being experts in more than one cloud. I think it becomes a very opinionated thing. And uh, either you like AWS or you like GCP and you live in that ecosystem and you become an expert, I think it's probably unusual to find somebody who really wants to do multi-cloud. And nobody wants to do Azure, according to Jonathan. <laughs> Just got left off the list. <laughs> Who's that again? <laughs> They're the AI people. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Ah, they're the people with with a big bank balance that, that swept in with their money and, and bought somebody who's successful at the last minute. That's right. 
I remember. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, the New York summit was this week, uh, including protests uh, from anti-Israeli uh, activists, apparently, because <laughs> that's the way to attack Amazon is Israel. I, I mean, so many other options like anti-union busting, uh, you know, predatory practices. Like there's so many other options you could protest, but apparently the New York summit always attracts the protesters who like to protest things that Amazon is doing. Uh, they had several announcements this week. Uh, really, most of them were not that exciting. A lot of uh, Redshift, Glue, and Snowflake <laughs> uh, announcements that are sort of interesting if you're into things like Apache Iceberg Tables or Serverless for Glue. Uh, you can check those out in our show notes. Uh, the one that I did catch my eye a little bit was introducing AWS Health Imaging, purpose-built for medical imaging at scale. It's a new purpose-built service that helps builders develop cloud-native applications that store, analyze, and share medical imaging data at petabyte scale. Health imaging ingest data in the DICOM P10 format, and it provides APIs for low latency retrieval and purpose-built storage. Uh, I'm sure you can also probably get this on Outposts in about nine to twelve months, where you can <laughs> have it in your in your hospital. So it's S3 and a machine learning model that looks at pictures. Okay, next, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. with low latency. Hey, but it sounds it sounds fancy. They announced it at the summit. So, uh, but this uh, did prove to me again that we should definitely not be doing predictions for summits because I would have predicted none of those. <laughs> I would have said something about AI, which they didn't, of course, mm-hmm. announce, because why would they do that? That's the obvious thing to do. Uh, but moving into uh, AI, they did announce Llama 2. <laughs> Foundation models from Meta are now available on Amazon SageMaker Jumpstarts. Uh, and I'm only mentioning this because last week we talked about Azure getting them and how silly it was that Azure was getting all the open AI. And now Llama 2 as well. But apparently everyone's getting Llama 2 because Meta's just giving that away for free. So there you go. So you can now use Llama 2 on AWS. I'm expecting Google to announce the same thing any day, or they might have already announced it and I just missed it. Yeah, I wonder if I misunderstood the first, the Azure uh, article last week, because like Llama 2, from my understanding, is sort of open source, right? Like it's, um, and so like it really is just, you know, you can now use this model on our platform, which is more, more standard than like a partnership or a, a commitment to invest resources into. Yeah, they just added the model into SageMaker, so it's just there. So it's just another drop down between all the other models. Well, that's what I, yeah, my question is: Did I did I I wonder if I misunderstood the Azure post because this the Amazon one is much more clear and understandable, at least to me. Well, I mean that's a that's a very common practice for Azure blog posts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not, they use a lot of weird words and a lot of weird uh, things. There's there's awful lot of models out there actually. There if, are um, if you go to like huggingface.co, uh, there's um, there's a, a guy called Tom Jobbins, known as the Bloke, and he has uh, available for download like close to 600 different models, and a lot of them are like quantized versions of, of the large models, so you can run them on you know sensible commodity hardware. But uh, but yeah, there's there's dozens to choose from that have been trained on different data sets. Some are tuned for chat, some are tuned for other things. So yeah, don't don't be restricted by what um, what the cloud providers actually turn into a product and sell you when you can use any open source tools like PyTorch to take these models and do whatever you like with them, even in SageMaker. I mean, apparently Microsoft, according to this web page, has open source have 257 models. <laughs> I mean, Google's at 593, so there are a lot more models than I knew existed out there. I think the the industry is just sort of reaching well, that stage, uh, right? For PyTorch has been around for a while. These models have been growing for a while, but it wasn't easy unless you were a data scientist to adopt. And now I think we're just reaching this commodity stage where it's integration directly at the, at the platform level because it was hard. And so they fixed that glitch. And now now you can just select it from a dropdown and use it. Well, you know, I was doing the show notes today and it kind of spurred the title that we use for the show today. But uh, AWS Transfer Family... Uh, is announcing more features today. And I have to say that I've seen more features for AWS Transfer Family than I've seen for any other SFTP solution I've seen in decades. <laughs> uh, you know, typically they, you know, a vendor sets up SFTP and then they kind of go off into the races. And we've had SFTP Transfer Family now include things like uh, pre, you know, pre-processors, post-processors. Uh, you get all kinds of support for like AES2, which you know, there's still SFTP vendors who've been around since the 90s who don't support AES2. Uh, and so, you know, they just continue to do things. And today they're announcing another thing. And so that's why we're now celebrating the only innovator in SFTP, <laughs> the transfer family. 
This time, they're launching SFTP connectors, which is a fully managed and low-code capability to securely and reliably copy files at scale between remote SFTP servers and Amazon S3. Files transferred using SFTP connectors are stored in Amazon S3, enabling you to unlock value from data using analytics, data lakes, or AI ML services in AWS. Uh, and I'm like, oh, so you just got rid of the SFTP part. You just went in and said, we'll get it from your SFTP server and save you the trouble of even sending it to us, which is kind of what I always wanted the service to be. So, you know, well done. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real thing. It's, it's just, it's hilarious, right? In this modern age, like we're still talking about FTP and, and these servers, but the, the reality is always somewhere in the middle where, you know, through acquisition, you end up with two different servers and you have a whole bunch of clients that know one. And if you've ever tried to debug an SSH session and configure these things for audience that's less than technical, like debugging is a nightmare. And so no one really wants to touch it. So these things are fantastic because these allow you to keep all of your things. And then if you upload, you know, a, a file to one FCP server, you could have it just propagate to the rest and then have it be done all without having to debug any kind of FTP client on the remote end. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of funny though, because now like, you know, as I think about, you know, on GCP and Azure and, and like of all the services you could copy from AWS, like what, what service do I want you to copy? And I kind of come back to transfer family. I'm like, if you just copy that transfer family thing, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd also like them to copy SES because uh, they don't have a rely. They don't have a mail service on GCP, which annoys the crap out of me. But uh, or a D- Azure, Azure. Well, Azure uses Office or Office three sixty five. You can just send it all the data over there, can't you? Mm, no, they tell you you have to use SendGrid. Is like their preferred solution, which confuses me. No, it makes perfect like, sense. You, if I was Google and Azure, I wouldn't touch S- SES or an email service with a ten foot pole. Right? Like it's just. Right for but abuse. they already have, have they? So like, they run the two largest email platforms in the in the world. I would assume, like, yeah, one and two, tied to inboxes. Yeah, yeah, no, feels like something that would make my life much easier. I mean, that's the trick with SES is it allows you to generate email and send email, right? Like, it's not an inbox, it's not a receiver. There's no accountability, and so it's. It's just how you how you generate spam mail, which is why AWS is evil when it comes to bounce rate protection and and you know the the identity protections that they have. I don't know. That team is my least favorite team out there because in order to talk to them or get any support for them, you have to go to your root email address. And it doesn't make sense. And I've yelled at them many times about it. There's this Google Workspaces annoyance that I have. Uh Anybody who's ever managed Google Workspaces, it's not an easy process. It reminds me very much of, of uh, administering Exchange 5.5 sometimes, uh, but in a web interface. Uh, but so SPF records are this like pretty important security thing that you know came out that you know mm-hmm. validates that this email sender is sending is actually valid to send for your domain. Uh, so Google <laughs> Workspaces, for whatever dumb reason. Whatever your root domain is that you created the thing is, is the e- is where the email will come from for the end of time. The email will always come from that root account. So even if you're doing it, like you have aliases and you have different domain names and things like that, you can never make SPF work because it will not support that, that configuration because the email, you know, like <laughs> you send the email, but it doesn't match the domain. So now it fails SPF automatically. <laughs> so I've, I spent hours on their forums trying to figure out a workaround for this of like, there's got to be a way like an SPF protocol change or something I can do to like tell it that yes, this domain is valid coming from this mail server, but it's actually coming from this other domain that is actually also valid for that. Dom- like it just doesn't work. And I just, it la- I laugh at it, but then I, I and I'm sad about it. Cause it's like, I would like to increase my SPF security and not get reports from domains that SPF is failing. Uh, but then, you know, I also remember like, Oh yeah, I can't send an outlook invite from, Google can't send an Outlook invite that can properly remind you that's been going on for 15 years too. So I don't really know what they're doing at Google, but do better. Is that because you have two domains um, for the same? Yeah, I have, I have work, one Google admin account. You know, I've got one Google Workspace account and I have multiple aliases. The CloudPod is one of them <laughs> uh, that I use. That I, you know, And it'd be nice that when I send as that email account that it would then say, oh, yes, I actually sent the email from that domain. But it doesn't actually send the email from that domain. It sends it from the root domain that I created the workspace account with, but then shows the display as the cloud pod. 
And then that fails SBF every time. It's great. Super happy about it. Just <laughs> I feel like we've got off the deep we end because I we think have. we were I talking just, about guys, family. You start you start talking about ancient technologies like FTP, then you get in the dregs about you know email, email and, and domain. Next thing you know, we're we'll talking about you know send you know send mail and uh, what's the other one? I, who I wants to talk about MTA relay? Post yeah, yeah, MTA post. <laughs> yes. Thank you. MTA relay. I just want some Telnet on my servers. I, I just want Telnet to them guys. It should be that difficult. And then, you know, you're gonna, we're going to do other dumb things that Microsoft does too. Like, hey, you know, out of the box, when you set up a brand new AD domain, uh, it doesn't enable it as LDAP S <laughs> in 2023. Like, really? <laughs> like, why? Why aren't you doing that? Uh, anyways, right. Because we'd have ah, to change so all our works. documentation. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. That's decades <laughs> worth of AD documentation. Yeah. Let's move to GCP. Don't worry, no one looks at them. So obviously their commitment to never breaking anything. <laughs> that, is, that is Microsoft has that has going back in spades. I'm sure you mm-hmm. can still compile code that ran, you know, in Visual C and it will work just fine because they never break backwards compatibility. I can tell you 100% you can. <laughs> <laughs> sure, you can. All right, let's talk about GCP. Happier places. Yes, Happier yes. places. Uh, Google Next is just about a month away. Google Cloud Next, of course, will be the premier Google Cloud conference in San Francisco at Moscone Center, August 29th and the 30th, I believe, the two days. Uh, they have released the session catalog. So if you've already signed up to go, you can go check out all the sessions. They like to highlight all of the new sessions on AI to teach you everything to do about AI. Lots of talks about serverless and containers, which they put together, which I thought was interesting, and DevOps practices and much, much more. All available to you in the catalog. Uh, I will be checking out what I'm going to check out when I'm at the conference as well. So I want to know if I can get AI to schedule me in these things. Cause I, with every single conference, I always have the best of intention of going through the catalog in advance and figuring out what I want to do and getting all excited and the whole thing. But without fail, it's five minutes before I, a session and I'm like, Oh, trying to figure out how to get across to wherever it needs to go. Well, I mean, it's, Google Google Next is not the size of reInvent, so it's no. it's much easier to plan and like oh yeah I don't have to I don't have to transfer three hotels on a bus to get there in ten minutes so it's a little easier yeah you know Moscone's big but it's not that big I still managed to screw it up yeah <laughs> I'll send you some suggestions when I go through my catalog like, hey yeah. Ryan go to this please one. do yeah Cloud Deploy is getting deploy parameters uh, a new console creation flow and reduced pricing. Uh, this all comes after they announced the parallel deployment capabilities. Uh, several of their customers reached out and said they like the ability to use the deployment parameters and parallelization to focus deployments on just child targets in the thing, which is how this deploy parameters now lets you specify those specific child targets. They've also reduced the price of the Active Cloud deployed delivery pipelines and expanded no charge usage to include single target delivery pipelines, making it easier than ever to get started with Cloud Deploy. And they have new wizards and simple configurations to allow you to deploy your first pipeline with simple delivery and targets and release directly in the deploy console all your trials and experiments in a nice new visual GUI. Which doesn't love a good GUI in deployment? Apparently no one, because Jenkins still survives. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the problem, though, I think, is that, is that I think a lot of the business that the cloud providers are seeing now are coming from cloud migrations. Um, I'm sure, sure they're getting some startups, some cloud native apps as well, but a lot of the business is going to be from migrations. And people either have Jenkins already or some other kind of uh, CI set of tooling and build processes and things like that. So if if Google are going to provide services for deployments, then it would really be in their interests to make it so that you could also do on-prem deployments with the same set of tools. Otherwise, it's like, well, we're using Jenkins on-prem, but we move into the cloud. So do we use Jenkins for the cloud or do we have two separate sets of, of workflows now? Like, I, I feel like, you know, they've, they've all got database management and storage management and migration solutions in place, but they really don't have a good multi-cloud deployment um, tool. Why would they have a tool that helps you deploy to multiple clouds that are competitors? I mean, other than Anthos. <laughs> I don't know about Google, but I know that AWS, you can run code deploy on-prem, and I've done that at one point where you install the agents and it will handle the deployment there, which is a nice way to do a migration if you move your tooling first. Yep. 
you know, put it into the new tooling and then all you need to do is flip over the host later on. Makes it sound so easy. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so easy. easy. It's like, yeah. it's like an afternoon, Jonathan, come on. Yeah. Hi, Matt. It'll be done in, done in no time. <laughs> yeah. I miss the, um, I, I miss a lot of things from AWS working in the GCP world now, like, um, uh, the SSM agent mm. number one, I think. That um, one is my number one miss. Like I, you know, it's funny as, as much work as I did to get off of server-based workloads, um, you know, the, the one thing that I, I, you know, ended up leveraging a lot was even for container orchestration was a SEM agent for just running ad hoc things, gathering inventory statistics and all kinds of things. And so it's, it's one of those things where there, there are options, but it's so nice to have it just built in and just go. I really do miss that. Yeah, the secure connections, everything else, it's it makes life so much easier just to have it there and done and you don't have to think about it. I agree. Definitely one of the big things I miss. Yeah. I was gonna say SES, but based on our prior conversation, I might get yelled at. <laughs> don't don't miss that. I mean, yeah. kind of kind yeah. of a tangent, but um so I've been thinking about what to use with container orchestration at home because you know, who doesn't want container orchestration at home? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> been through lots of different options. And uh, you know what I've settled on? I've settled on ECS anywhere. Nice. <laughs> oh, nice. I still like ECS. It's just easy. I'm just a simple yeah. person. Yeah. I, and I don't want to deal with things. Yeah. I'm, I'm still a big fan of it. I was doing stuff with it today and I'm just like, it's just so simple. I don't have to think about all of this complexity <laughs> with Kubernetes. Uh, maybe because it's just been abstracted away and I just don't think about it. I still oh, really enjoy it. absolutely. Right. But, that's what I want mm-hmm. of the cloud vendor. Yeah. Make it simple for me. Give me a solution that is like, I can't mess it up. Or Ryan can't mess it up. It doesn't yeah. matter. Both of us can mess it up worse together. <laughs> We've proven this true. for past lives. <laughs> and I, I'm, not, I, I'm using Fargate a few times. I'm not a huge fan of Fargate just because it's expensive for what it is. Um, and limiting. If you're in a really small environment, I've recommended it because all your security is taken care of. So if you have to deal with audits or anything, Mm -hmm. it's worth it. But you got to be a small enough scale, like under 10 or under 15 containers running in your production environment. I have a friend who I'm helping with something. We're only running like one container. And I'm like, that container is not worth 90 some odd dollars a month that it costs to run it there. Between all the things. That was like 18 to 20. I mean, mean, it depends on how much RAM you need. (laughs) But... uh, Oh, yeah. That's always the key. All right. Well, if you're an on-call engineer who is supporting the Google Cloud, you'll be excited to know that when you are now not at your desk uh, or out getting dinner or whatever, that you can now open a cloud support case directly to Google from their Google Cloud mobile app, just in time to be ignored and not fix your issue by the time you got home. So at least you got the (laughs) the ticker started on that SLA, which is appreciative. Uh, So by the time I get back from picking up whatever I'm doing when the outage happened, uh, maybe... Google will have paid attention to me by then. But they most likely won't, so I'll still be waiting. But hey, it's an improvement. So to be fair, out of all the mobile support, you know, the, the mobile app for cloud uses, this is the only one that I will probably, I might actually use this one. Like, yeah. I don't need to troubleshoot my AC2 consoles. I don't need to look at my network firewalls and GCP. I don't need to, you know, do so many things. But figure out if I've got a response from a support case so that I can move on with my day. Yeah. Actually, that one I might use. <laughs> uh, so I, I will say that I have definitely support case. is definitely a use case I've used the mobile apps for. Uh, and then rebooting an EC2 box just as a, as a paramilitary, like, I'm on my way home, let me reboot this box and mm-hmm. hope it fixes it. And sometimes it does, which uh, works. So those are the two use cases I've mostly had. But yeah, like looking at performance metrics, looking at, uh, you know, different things, trying to set up anything like, yeah, forget all that use case. Like, no, no time for that on my little teeny tiny phone to look at logs. Well, Azure didn't really have any news that I thought was worthy. They had another puff piece on AI, but I killed it. I was like, there's no way we're talking about that again. Uh, <laughs> but they, uh, Wiz, uh, filled in the gap for us tonight, which typically would be follow-up. But uh, they, uh, they reported back on doing some research on the uh, recent attack by the Chinese government onto Microsoft, the Storm 0558 vulnerability, if you will. Uh, Wiz, of course, for those of you who have been paying attention, is one of the now leading cloud security researching companies as well as a provider of cloud security posture management solutions. Uh, Wiz uh, basically you know, reports that Microsoft indicated Outlook and Exchange were impacted by the token thing, but Wiz wanted to know more. Like Maybe they could figure out how that compromise key was compromised. 
Uh, so they did a bunch more research into it, uh, and they concluded uh, actually that the scope is potentially much, much worse uh, with multiple types of Azure AD applications potentially being uh, impacted, including every application that supports personal account authentication, such as SharePoint, Teams, OneDrive, and any app that supports logging with Microsoft capability under certain conditions could be compromised. Uh, they also call out Microsoft's IOCs as being BS, uh, as the encryption keys and source IP addresses are helpful, but there's no way for you to actually verify that the, whether those encryption keys are being used or not used because you don't have access to the logging that would be required to know <laughs> that they were doing so. Uh, so it's nice on the surface, but not super helpful. Uh, and they basically conclude through their research that they believe that whatever key was, allow- was able to allow them to sign an OpenID V2 token, which is a big security issue. Microsoft, of course, responded to the Wiz article and said, many of the claims made in this blog are speculative and not evidence-based. We recommend that customers review our blog, specifically our Microsoft Threat Intelligence blog, to learn more about this incident and investigate their own environments using the indicators of compromise that we've made public. We were also recently expanded security logging availability, making it free for more customers by default to help enterprises manage an increasingly complex threat landscape. Uh, which that's a best non-statement you could have made, Microsoft. So. Yeah, I like the changing the the security logging to free, though. I think that that's a good response. I'll give them credit for that one because sure. that's really what I want. It's one of the things I really dislike about Azure is you have to pay for security for a lot of things. So like in AWS, sure, you want your stuff to run in a VPC, doesn't really cost you anything extra. But for Azure, in order to get to be integrated into your VNet or anything else, it's always like you have to do the higher end tiers. And this is, I feel like, a good case where they got called out on it. And now it's like, okay, we're just going to give it to free to make sure we don't get called out on it again. But to me, security shouldn't be extra. It should just be table stakes day one. I don't know. All that log is going to be paid for by something. So <laughs> <laughs> it's still interesting to me how little Microsoft has started to do and really push out security stuff. They just keep being embarrassed. You know, they hired Charlie Bell over a year ago now, I think, right? We're from AWS. Or, yeah, close to it. To lead their security practices. And I think it's been nothing but embarrassing security event after embarrassing security event. So I, I wonder if he's hitting resistance internally or. Uh, if there's other issues at play. But, you know, Microsoft's never really been known for the, the highest amount of security <laughs> of companies in the enterprise space. Uh, but, you know, you're a SaaS vendor now. It's a slightly different problem. Yeah, he's also than, dealing with 40 years of tech debt. So, I mean, I'm yeah. not quite sure how quickly anyone could single-handedly uh, ch- change the org. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The tech debt could be part of it, too. It's a good factor. I mean, again, is it is it resistance internally to him or is it tech debt? It's always a question. And change can be slow. I mean, even even willing, you know, if you have a willing audience, it just there's a lot of things that can go or needs to go together, or go in lockstep, and you know, planning is is definitely the hardest part of any tech problem. Right? And so, like, I get it. But I'm hoping that it's not resistance. I'm hoping that it's not politics. I'm I'm, I'm I don't know why I'm optimistic on this, but like. Hoping it'll just we'll slow, it'll slowly like a like a frog in boiling water get better. Oh wait, that's not how that works. <laughs> I will say I did find Wiz to be kind of a little bit sensationalist in their reporting on things, and they are clearly making claims which are entirely speculation that they do not have the evidence for, and we know they don't have the evidence because they literally say they don't have the evidence, even you know it's not available. I mean, they're being transparent about it, so I mean, I appreciate mm-hmm. like this is. And they, they're very clear in that they, they say this is what we believe may have happened. We mm-hmm. have no evidence that we're right, but you know, based on what we can see from external factors and what we can look at in the Wayback Machine and those things, we think this is a valid assumption that you should be concerned about or you should at least be pushing Microsoft to ask. I think you sort of need that guy who's an advocate for you, even if they're a little crazy, <laughs> because sometimes you don't know all the ways that something can be... Um, but yeah, you know, I, I actually don't mind them as much as I like Aqua. Or sorry, uh, is it, no, uh, Orca, Orca security Orca. is the one that yeah. drives me crazy because they're super sensationalist in their headlines. And uh, you know, so maybe I'm just I'm just so immune to Wiz's BS because Orca is so much worse than they are. But I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is a problem, Jonathan. Yeah, well, I, I felt the same way you did, Jonathan, which or, or uh, Justin, which is that they definitely told you they were speculating and then walked you all the way through the speculation, right? Like, here's why we're speculating. And then that for me is you're, that's how you're going to answer a lot of questions. You're not going to get a smoking gun 
on on some of these things because they're you know they're not going to tell you here's the the security fingerprint that that was taken right like you're never going to get that out of Microsoft and so I do feel like you know there's a certain amount of speculation that has to be done and I definitely appreciated the explanations um, it might be wrong sure because they don't you know they only have the public data versus what Microsoft has but Microsoft's also not telling us which you know which key and how it was how it was stolen. And so we can't validate these things except for through basically an investigation and some detective work that Wiz did. Yeah, I, I suspect that they're not, they're not disclosing that information yet, but they will in the future. I mean, normally when there's an ongoing investigation, especially if it's state-sponsored hacking, that then the FBI would be involved and, and other agencies. And it may just be that they're not willing to share that information right now. It's possible, yeah. I'm sure that's the case, and you know yeah. they could they could also state that like, hey, we we do know how it happened, but we can't report that until after our investigation is completed or whatever. Yeah, um, I, can, I can imagine it now in the blog post this this attack was so serious. We've got the <laughs> the FBI now involved. That's going to look great for for people's uh, comfort levels. Yeah, that's uh, true. Maybe that's so great. Did note that the Wiz was being sued by Orker actually for um, infringement to their intellectual property. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know the terms of that case. I haven't looked at the case filing on it, but that one seemed a little like, why is, why, what, what did they steal that no one else has? Because like you guys are all in cloud security posture management way after Evident IO and uh, and Redlock were in it. <laughs> so if anyone stole anything, it's going to be uh, stuff from those guys who you know founded the whole idea. Maybe something there. Yeah, it's uh, probably not. It is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a way to make them look. You know, Wiz is definitely growing faster than Orca is, so gotta gotta threaten them, I guess. Have you been waiting months and months to hire your new AWS GCP Azure architect, only to have them be poached at the eleventh hour by a startup with a juice bar? Initiative stalled because you're having trouble hiring. Well, I have a simple solution: Falcon Consulting. Falcon Consulting provides top-notch cloud engineers to the world's most innovative companies and can be burning down your DevOps and cloud backlogs as soon as next week. Falcon certified AWS, GCP, and Azure professionals are armed with infrastructure as code and from day one will be designing performant, optimized cloud-native or hybrid environments that deliver on the promise of cloud. Their FogOps solution even provides on-demand cloud engineering to augment your existing teams. Visit www.foghornconsulting.com or send an email to cloudtalentnow at foghornconsulting.com and tell them the CloudPods sent you. Your dedicated FogOps team is with you for the long haul, and they bring their own juice. All right, let's talk about Oracle. Uh, there was an article I saw here, and since Azure wasn't you know, helping us this week, I thought, well, this Oracle one is sort of funny to me. Easily install Oracle Java on Oracle Linux and Oracle Cloud. It's a perfect match. And all I can think of, it's a perfect match to get you locked in to paying Oracle forever. Uh, for those of you who leverage the Oracle Cloud, you get apparently a free license and full support of Oracle Java SE and Oracle Graal VM versions at no extra cost. Uh, Oracle Java is, of course, a fully supported uh, Oracle Linux, uh, or sorry, fully supported on Oracle Linux, and compatible with Intel, AMD, and ARM-based processors, uh, which is great. So we get you hooked on all of this great Java technology that uses all the proprietary Oracle stuff and on the Oracle Cloud, and then when we jack our prices up uh, to astronomical levels, and you leave us to go to AWS or else, we'll just sue you and get licensing for using Oracle Java SE that you don't get for free anymore. It's a brilliant play, uh, and it's a trap if you're trying to use multi-cloud. Yeah, I think they kind of they're trying to take a page out of Microsoft's book. It's like, oh, look what they're doing with SQL licensing. They can they can charge less for people on their own cloud than other people have to pay. But the the thing is, you can always use this Open JDK. You don't have to pay yeah. Oracle, even, and you probably shouldn't. Even on Oracle, you can. What's funny is that this I had the same thought, and then my response to Microsoft doing it versus Oracle doing it is radically different. You know, like it's like when Microsoft does it, I'm like this is their only chance of being relevant in the cloud space. It's a good idea. You know, cloud SQL's hard, but Oracle does it. I'm like those slimy bastards. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like it's different because SQL Server doesn't have a, a free competitor of, of equal, uh, you know, caliber. Yeah, uh, it really doesn't. Well, and and Oracle has misplayed their hand so much that the only reason that the open source GDK exists is because of how predatory Oracle has been. 
There was there was a proprietary or sorry, an open source version of .NET for a while, wasn't it? Like Mono. Yeah, Mono's still like around. Yeah, we still yeah. use Mono. Uh, but I, I I do think they end up getting bought or sponsored by Microsoft. Like Microsoft actually contributing code to them. <laughs> like there there's some weird thing that happened under you know the latest regime over there that they they got up close and partnered with them in some way. Go way down to get sued. Mono was first released in 2004. Did not see that coming. The, is that for .NET or for Microsoft SQL? Server. It's .NET. 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 So this is the .NET framework. Yeah. yeah. So you were able to run like Office on on Linux for a long time there. All right. Well, that is it for this week's news. But we do have a cloud journey series today. Uh, so we're going to have the infamous cloud shared responsibility model, uh, which is a framework that defines the security and compliance responsibilities of cloud service providers and their customers. And you will hear this all the time when you're talking about security in the cloud and what the cloud needs for security. And basically, uh, Amazon phrased all of this out and Azure copied it wholesale, basically saying that security between uh, the cloud provider and you as the customer is your responsibility and our responsibility. And they give you pretty detailed breakdowns of ISO controls, SOC controls, et cetera, that they then map to here's the parts that are our responsibility and here's the parts that are your responsibility. Uh, there are several areas of security and compliance that are in this, including cloud infrastructure, platform, and services. Uh, and there are several key points that we can talk about if we want to. But uh, what do you guys think about the shared security model? Makes a lot of sense. I think it's very fair. I think it's it's well defined. Um, it's, I mean, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's very clear cut. Like what you're saying, it's well defined. So it's like, okay, these are the lines in in the sand of where what is yours and what is mine. You know, data center security, a hundred percent. You know, the cloud providers, OS, you know, patching, a hundred percent yours. You know, so. I think they made it in such a way that it's very clear defined so that there's no gray area. And that's what actually makes the cloud and the cloud security uh, responsibility model actually make sense and be easy for people to understand. I also think that being able to leverage a partner to handle their portion of that security is like an immense value um, of using a cloud to, to host your service, right? It's so they can do it at a larger scale. They can do it across systems and, um, and they can, you know, move workloads around it. When, if you're a smaller company, it's a lot more difficult to orchestrate. It's a lot more expensive or at least a bigger hit to the bottom line. And so I think it's a huge value of being able to do that. And it prevents a lot of smaller companies when it used to be in the data center days from, from patching or keeping up to date at all, just because it was too difficult. It also enables a lot of smaller companies to get these higher level security standards because half of it's just taken care of. Cool. You want, you know, to, using SOC as an example, you know, you want to get SOC, SOC 2 compliant? Cool. Here's all of AWS and here's all the low level stuff that, you know, they handle, how they handle security and reference all their stuff. And cool. I'll give you then all the higher level stuff. So it kind of also, I was going to say deburdens, but I don't think that's a real word. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go with it. Deburdens the workload of the you know smaller entities to be able to get these compliance, which a lot of larger companies, when you sell to them, say you have to have these standards. Was that the mic drop? Like we're done. <laughs> I wonder if there's any differences between cloud vendors in the way they they implement this. I mean, it, it, I, I would assume. Not, I assume it's a very bare bones set of responsibility assignments, and I, I can't imagine that any any vendor would would take on more responsibility than they actually absolutely have to. Um, and I, one thing I do like is that that part of the um, the shared responsibility sort of model requires that the vendors make the tools available to you and the data available to to customers so that they can, um, you know, realistically take on the responsibility of, of the security needs of their environment. And so they do provide CloudTrail logs, audit logs, things like that. Now you may have to pay for them. And that's that, that's potentially uh, a downside. But at least the, the tooling is there so that you can be responsible for those things. I mean, there's a little bit of difference um, 
in the way GCP does some of their models, just in the, because it's a, you know, there's a shared security model, but then there's also what is colloquial terms for the shared fate. And, you know, in a lot of cases, it's a, an add-on service that you pay for. Um, but, you know, it's, it's basically a way to say, Hey, Google prevent me from using a non-compliant workload. And it's like a feature that they, um, that they'll enable there. And they do that for both security and for operational concerns, which is kind of interesting. I thought that was a, a unique take on that sort of shared model where typically it's about defining where the responsibilities lie, but Google's almost offering like, we'll, we'll, we'll move the line for some, for a nominal fee, which I thought was very interesting. Yeah. It's just an insurance policy. But they're going to control the. They're going to control what you can do then. At that yeah, point. that's the trade-off is flexibility, right? Yeah, they they basically make sure that they that you're meeting their standards to get that that partnership with the, not only their insurance provider for cybersecurity insurance, but also for um, you know how much are they willing to commit in liabilities to you, uh, you know, and so then there's audits and things you have to go through, I think, to do all that stuff. So it's. It's a nice marketing play. It's not really something that I think a lot of companies are going to take advantage of if they have a relatively good security model. I think the more interesting part of the shared security model is going to be the services you use. So if you're using, you know, uh, SaaS versus a PaaS versus IaaS, uh, you know, and the different levels that you get and like where your line in the sand kind of falls with them. Because as you get to more completely managed services on there, there's less things that you can even do. So yeah, you might need to check the box saying, hey, enable the uh, container to be running on, you know, inside your VNet or inside your VPC, you know, but, you know, if you're running an EC2 instance, you know, you, you have to manage a lot more, you have to manage the OS. So one of the other pieces about it is understanding what the tools inside the platform have and then where your level of responsibility is inside of there. I mean, defining the cloud security model is one thing. Do you think the cloud vendors are doing a good enough job of making sure customers understand their responsibilities? I, I don't think they do. And I, and I think a lot of their defaults are not necessarily secure by default. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I look at Amazon EC2, like, you know, yeah. e, you create a new EBS volume you have to check the boxes to make it encrypted versus it being encrypted all the time. Uh, like I think like the non-secure options or the less secure options should be something I have, I have to go make a conscious choice to do. Um, and I feel like, you know, particularly in Amazon's case, I don't know about Azure, so I don't use it as much, uh, or GCP in this case either. But, um, I, you know, if you're not going by default secure, then I don't know why you're not at this point. Because it's just checkboxes in a GUI for most of the time when you're doing these things. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going to go. I wasn't thinking of um, EBS. I was thinking of the, the S3 and the yeah. um, the news we've heard about public buckets and things over the years. And I know Amazon's gone done some lengths to, to to make that more secure by default, um, including you know having to type in ridiculously long strings of text into consoles when you want to do things like create public buckets or, uh, or delete things. Um, I mean, I think that you know all the cloud providers have yeah, made efforts to make them. Um, the the more secure yeah, option, the default option. Say. I think it's it's easy to say that it should just be on by default, um, but it's it's a lot harder to go through and update all your API methods for every EC2 function to make sure that it's it's actually calling the downstream service the right way with the right variables and the right things and has the you know the sources of truth or inf- inputs into that to do it. And so, like I think it takes a little bit of time. You know, I think that all, you know, at least AWS and GCP, there's definitely now, you know, the ability to control these things from a central place um, across all your projects or all your accounts. Um, And there's, you know, different ways that you can sort of control and maintain that ecosystem. So it may not be as fast as we want, but I, I, I do think that it's moving in that direction. But it's for like net new services that they're building out. like you know, that I feel like isn't enabled by default. And like, sure, it might not be, you know, your own KMS key. Maybe it's the default KMS key, you know, for it, you know, or something along those lines. You know, like, I'd be curious to see if health, AWS health imaging is by default encrypted. 
or how they, you know, are they using KMS? I mean, I hope so because it is literally targeted towards healthcare and that terrifies me from a HIPAA standpoint. But, you know, it'd be curious to see all these new features and most services when they come out on AWS, you know, are very much MVP. And I've noticed that a lot of them don't support KMS day one where, you know, that should just be a default thing that is table stakes. You know, and even, you know, with Azure, a lot of things, you know, are you have to go to the higher tiers in order to get it. And I get, yeah, in order to do some of these things, it does cost some money on the back end to you know, implement security features, but it should just be default. Or if you want to go, like Justin said, if you're in the UI, yeah, make it be a little bit hard to make it be less secure. If you're already using Terraform, any other IEC tool, you already hopefully know enough that you are looking at these types of settings day one, or you're leveraging a tool that will scan, you know, your IEC code and say, Hey, you're making this public, but you know, bucket public, like maybe you don't want to and building that into a pipeline or just running it locally, at least. I remember the thing I was going to mention actually, and it, it was around um, something that I think is missing from, from the, the model, or at least I feel like the cloud vendors aren't doing a good job of, kind of fulfilling what I think is one of the responsibilities, which is educating people properly in, in how to do things securely. Because uh, the the number of uh, pieces of example code, whether it's in blogs for product announcements or things in GitHub repos, you know, this is how you get started with Lambda. You, first, we create a, uh, a Lambda function and assign it the admin role for the account. Oh, really? How, how is that setting a good example? I, th- I think I think if, if we really want to get on board with shared security, then... Not, not leading people to think that that's okay it should be a part of that. But Jonathan, how else do I run my Lambda if it's not an admin? I, mean, I know it works as admin, but you've got to figure out why, why, why it doesn't work as the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I haven't seen that in a while. Like, you know, the, the, it used to be much more of a prevalent thing where the permissions were sort of like brushed aside right at the beginning. But lately, all the, all the things that I've been doing anyway and researching, it's much more... Uh, prescriptive in terms of permissions. I, I feel like that message has been delivered. It may not be across the board, but it is yeah, at least not, I think it's a change that's happening. It's definitely getting better for sure. Yeah. I'm thinking of like SM, SSM when it like initially was created, it gave it like S3 star or something really wide. Um, and now it's, you know, there's another role that is like much more defined down. Yeah, well, and then you have like so. the new verified permissions model. They just announced it reinforced. Like they're definitely doing. They're doing things that I sort of argue, would argue they should have done a while ago, but they are at least making progress. So it's, it's a plus, but um, you know, we definitely need to, I, I think they could step up a lot more. I think, again, training and stuff would be great. You know, make it easy to access the training, not just the docs, and explain to people why this is not a secure thing or why it's a certain thing. Because reading the doc, I, you, know, you understand the doc, maybe in the steps required to do something, but like the why behind why you're doing it is not always there in the docs. I was going to say, I, I actually like I like the idea of, of such um, a well-defined contract between the customer and the vendor. And I think it's probably something that um, should be implemented, you know, outside of perhaps cloud vendors. You know, perhaps you should think about doing this with your own customers. Oh, yeah. No, that's a very good point. That's a great idea. Like if you want to paste something that's, that's uh, you know, somebody's social security number or some critical information into a field which is not designed for that, then we will not guarantee that it will be encrypted and, and stored in a way or handled in a way, you know, conducive with, with handling that type of data. So I think we should start being very clear with customers about their own responsibilities. That's what I have little, to customers. A little uh, paper clip <laughs> that pops up at the corner. It looks like you've copied in a credit card number yeah. <laughs> into this free text field. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, uh, why we were talking about that, I, was pulling up this Wiz lawsuit because I was curious about. Oh, I was reading it too. <laughs> uh, so a couple, a couple of real-time follow-up items here. So uh, you know, basically, uh, Orca is saying Wiz has built its business on simple business plan. Copy Orca. This copying is replete throughout Wiz's business and has a manifest in myriad of ways. Uh, this lawsuit was filed on July twelfth, by the way. Uh, Orca, which was launched in twenty nineteen, and in May raised a twenty million dollar funding round. Wiz was founded in February 2020 and has, has already been valued at $10 billion. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty massive. 
Uh, Wiz had to say, Orca has tried to compete with Wiz on several fronts and failed, and now they're pursuing less innovative methods to compete. That'd be a fun lawsuit to keep an eye on, I think, uh, over a while. But yeah, Orca's basically saying they're wholesale copying everything we do. Uh, Apparently they have a patent, and like this is where I go back to the point of like, uh, are those patents actually valid? Because again, like there's companies that existed way before Orca. Uh, the only thing Orca kind of did that was really unique was the ability to take EC2 instances and um, basically, you know, scan them offline, the the EBS volume, so you didn't have to actually tax the resources of the box. But that was all enabled through EC2 APIs. Right. And yeah. so that is one of the patents was, is, is the ability to, to scan um, elements at rest for security issues. If it, yeah, I'm, I'm skimming through the article, but um, the the last latter half of the points are um, evaluation by SourceForge between the features of the two businesses and the fact that they match. Like, and it's just it. This feels very much in frivolous lawsuit territory because there's no substantive substantive um, violation of the the patent breaches, which is the main claim in this. And so, like, I feel like this is more about sensationalism and, and headlines than it is about actual content. I wonder if this will hold up in the end. Well, it's one of those that do you really want to get into discovery? Because I mean, if you go into discovery on these two companies, like, you know, Mm -hmm. they're going to have talking crap about each other. (laughs) Like, are you willing to expose all your business, you know, all these business things and and areas of of focus, or are you going to be able to obfuscate it out enough? Like, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's perilous lawsuit. I I I assume it gets settled for something stupid, (laughs) but, uh, but if it goes to court, it'll be interesting to see if it actually makes it that far. I, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that I don't think that patent should be enforceable because if you think about the type of forensic analysis tools that have existed for decades, where whereby you take a snapshot of a running machine that's virtualized, you can take a copy of the RAM, you can take a copy of the disks with VMware. Um, they're doing that, except it's except sort of outside the the forensic investigation space you know you're not taking you're not it's sort of like an online process a semi-online process rather than being a completely offline process but all the technology and all the tools they're using are exactly the same tools that have been used for decades mm-hmm. well again i go back to the orca couldn't do what they're doing without amazon having built the capability for them to do it so like even if you say that i have a use pattern pattern patent on this pattern like a big part of the use pattern is amazon's <laughs> And I assume Amazon has patents on it as well or, or trademark or things. And then you've got, like you said, all the tools that you use once you have the data to actually scan it, you're just using common security practices you use forever just on a system that's offline. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, at, at a high level, they're, they're offline scanning backups of, of data. And that, yeah. that's nothing new. It's kind of annoying because I that was a feature request I made to Amazon IWS a long time ago was the ability to, to read snapshots directly from S3. Yeah. Sadly, Orca got there first. <laughs> they did it. That's that's how Orca does it. Yep. They, they, they gave it. Yep. They gave you your feature request, and then Orca took it and productized it. So. Yeah. My, my one vote didn't count towards that feature, unfortunately. <sighs> unfortunately. All right. Well, I'll see you guys next week here in the cloud. Yep. See you later. All right. Good week. Bye, everybody. Bye, everyone. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel, go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign-up instructions.